This show is dedicated to the memory of Stephen Lindley. We're going to miss you, you dear sweet man. Rest in peace. I am Citizen 44. This show is sponsored by Small Portions Cafe. The book by Douglas Fergus. Doug is a very close friend of mine, and he sent it all the way from the States so I could have my own personal signed copy. And I got to tell you, it's one of the most uniquely entertaining, silly, funny, interesting compilation of short stories I've ever read. Check out Small Portions Cafe. It's available both as a Kindle and a softcover book. Small Portions Cafe on Amazon. You are listening to Citizen 44 with Mark Aronsberg, live from Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. Hey everybody, Mark Aronsberg here. Welcome to Citizen 44. This is show number 95. Today on the show, my guest is Molly Brandenburg. Molly is a multidisciplinary creative professional. She's a writer, an illustrator, an actor, a singer, all kinds of stuff. I haven't seen Molly in about 20 years. Haven't even heard from Molly in about 20 years. But because of my podcast and because she is a podcast narrator on Spotify, somehow we re-engaged. And it turns out a couple of years ago, she put out a book called Letters from Bud. Her father, John Brandenburg, was a navigator in the Air Corps during World War II and happened to write down every detail of his experience, left them with his mother who kept them all these years, and they were handed to Molly, and she managed to see the light in these letters and realize there's gold in them, there are hills. It's really incredible to catch up with Molly and find out some of the details I didn't know about her life. And it was really great to hear her voice and to spend a little time together. So I'm five shows away from show number 100. It's taken me, what, three years? Is it three years? Four years? I don't even know how long or when this thing started, but I've been doing it a while now and I let it sit idly for a little while while I was here in Vietnam and it's really good to pick it back up. I've literally been working from home for two months. The whole city is shut down. The only businesses that are open are grocery stores and pharmacies. That's it. This whole city is shut down. There's almost no traffic out there. People are pretty much homebound and it's crippling this city. But thankfully, the company I work for continues to do business. They're based out of Singapore. A lot of their clientele's out of Singapore. So I'm able to maintain that. Plus I'm doing a video podcast for them that will launch tomorrow, Tuesday, the 10th, called Pure Now. A very exciting project. It's a video podcast. And I engage in casual conversations with creative professionals, noteworthy creative professionals from all over the world. So it's a really cool new project, and uh, I'm really happy to be a part of that. It's presented by the company I work for called Balance. They're an animation post-production house here in Saigon. So that's all going really well. And uh, my personal life is fine. I'm now back to a raw vegan diet. I'm eating like a gorilla. I'm mostly eating bananas. I make maybe a salad once a day. That's my meal. And then eat fruit or seeds. I'm dropping weight in a healthy way. 
and it uh, feels good. I love that feeling of emptiness. I missed that. I was having some health difficulties. They have significantly diminished because I changed my diet. Let me just tell you this. Other than the fact that I can't go walking right now because I'm pretty homebound like everybody else, which is the only real exercise I was getting, a change in your diet will change your life. It is a fact. It's not a myth. It's not a fallacy. It's not my opinion. It is what it is. What you put into your body informs your body of how you feel about your body. And since I have reduced my intake, and that's another factor too, is reducing calories. It's the difference between eating to live and living to eat. Most people live to eat. It's fun. Come on. We have so many things to choose from that are incredible. But I have gone to a eat to live kind of a thing. And uh, my body has responded appropriately. I was in incredible pain every day. I was having some difficulty with my hernia. It changed. It went in and wasn't popping back out. I don't know how to describe it, and I don't remember the terminology that accurately describes it, but I was having back pains for months, and I tried everything, massages, stretching, exercise, even the walking wasn't helping, and typically walking changes everything for me, but nothing was working, and I would just pop an ibuprofen every day. So I decided for multiple reasons to go back to how I was before I got here, which was eating really well. And within a week, I felt better. But within two weeks, most of my pain went away. I thought it was impossible that a hernia could heal without surgery. And that's still highly probable that there's no way that my hernia is healed. It's a hole in my body. It can't just close as far as I know. All the things I've read indicate that it requires repair. There's a couple of ways to repair it, but I'm not going into a hospital here in Vietnam, I'll tell you that right now. I've had some experiences with other people in hospitals here and I'm just not gonna do it. I'll die first, and that's the truth. I'll die, I'll lay in my bed and die before I go into a hospital here. So it's been, I guess, a month that uh, I've been eating this super clean diet. I'm in almost no pain, no ibuprofen anymore. I'm pounding water. I'm pounding bananas like a gorilla. The gorilla is the strongest, most powerful animal in the jungle. It eats fruit, a little bit of veggies, and a couple of things that fly around, little things. That's it. And look at that animal. It is solid, man. I mean, it's getting a lot more exercise than me, clearly, running around the jungle doing stuff. I did go for a walk yesterday, a quick walk. Anyway, it's really good to be back doing the show again, and it's really fantastic to catch up with Molly. Here we go. Is it truly you? It is. It is. It's been far too long. <laughs> Can we say at least a decade? At least. Can we say two decades? That would be evidenced by the young people who were babies the last time we saw each other. <laughs> That's right. You look fantastic. It's really pretty incredible that me being in Vietnam and you being 
Where where are you? I'm in Los Angeles. I was just in Ashland, Oregon a month ago and I thought of you. Oh, what were you doing there? Visiting. My brother's family is there and one of my dear childhood friends and some other childhood friends too. People from Southern Oregon, we stay friends since we're babies. That's what we do. <laughs> how, how long had it been since you were in Ashland last? Since before the pandemic. My family, we have a big reunion every 4th of July in the Ashland area, Jacksonville, yeah. but um, obviously we couldn't do it. So I kind of did a mini reunion on my own this year. <laughs> did you go to the 4th of July parade? No, I was there a little before the 4th. My friends I literally have known since I was four, I went up to also stay with her and her mother. It was a good time. <laughs> you are a very talented illustrator. You're a comedy writer, narrator for podcasts, and I don't know what else you got going on, but I know you got a lot of stuff. <laughs> don't tell me. <laughs> well, those are the only three main things that I'm aware of, but I'm sure doing other things other than being a mom. Your daughter just turned 21? Just turned, yeah, in March, yeah. This is why it's good to have kids, you know? I always wanted to animate my cartoons and I could never learn it. I had to have my baby and then raise her so she could go to CalArts, learn it, and now we're working on it together and she's my director. I love it. We're making a little YouTube cartoon. <laughs> Actually, we're doing kind of cutouts. We're animating little paper dolls on backgrounds, it's great. She records the voices and edits, and I don't know how to do any of that. And it's like, never say never. I've been working on these characters since I was like practically a baby. It's amazing that you can team up and both benefit each other in that way, that you're both throw something in the creative mix. Well, you know, it's funny. I didn't have my child until I was almost at the cliff's edge of not being able to have kids anymore. So I had a long life with no children, and then now I've had 21 years with a child. And it's interesting to have that perspective. And I remember I was very close to my father, and he was a painter as well as a doctor of medicine. But he would always tell me, you should have kids, it's great, because then when you see what they get involved in and they give you ideas and you can work on, he would tell me that you work on stuff together. And we did. So I get to have like the second version of that, being the elder. <laughs> I'm fascinated that I will now, at some point, be able to see your work animated. That's really very cool. It's wonderful to take something up that was long, long stored in the dusty art bin drawers in the back of the studio, and then all of a sudden they're coming to life. I don't know what's going to happen with it at all, but just to, to see them come to life. And there is something about if you can collaborate with a family member, it is a unique experience because you have sort of a creative shorthand together that can be wonderful. I mean, I know there's singing groups of family members that have that unique quality. Family members that sing harmony together, the Everly Brothers or people like that. You know, there's nothing quite like it. <laughs> so I'm enjoying this process a lot. My hometown, Medford, Oregon, was such a sports town. Some amazing athletes came out of my school, state champions of Oregon, and everyone in town would go to the games on the weekend. I mean, almost everyone in town would be there. And all that money, the tickets brought in, paid for this incredible arts program that we had in our school. So public school, no tuition, but we would do musical productions that were practically Broadway level. I mean, it was free for our parents. I mean, that's how it should be. Yeah.
My father was part of the medical community in Medford, and he went to medical school. He got back from World War II. He was in the U.S. Army Air Corps, the Air Force, in Europe at the end of World War II, and um, flew over the beach on D-Day. He told me that he had two more years of college to go to after the war. And they said, you can go wherever you want on the GI Bill. So he went to Berkeley because he said it was like a dream after being in North Dakota. And then he went back to North Dakota to go to medical school. And after he trained as a physician, there was an opportunity in Oregon to get involved in this clinic that was starting. One doctor had started it, but he needed young partners. So there was like five young doctors that came in and that grew and grew. And it's a huge medical community in Southern Oregon now. And my mom taught a little and raised four kids. <laughs> a lot of church work. And um, she later went back to school in Ashland and got a, another degree in literature and teaching. What was Medford like back then? It was great because it was a small enough town. I think there was maybe 30,000 people in town. All the people that had kids the same age, we all knew each other. And like I mentioned, I have friends I was a little kid with. And then we went all through elementary school. And then some of us were in the same classes together in high school and we're still friends. So it was almost a little bit like being in a village. But that part of it was great. And families were really supportive of the kids. And it was funny for me, like, if you were like the lead in the high school musical in Medford, there was so much support from families like everybody would see you and you got a lot of confidence because everybody'd seen you be the lead in Bye Bye Birdie. <laughs> it's a bigger town now, but it's beautiful to grow up in a rural area too. Things are busier now. It's more hectic. There's more cars, but when we were kids, we would just run around. <laughs> There were fields all over and I was running around freely as a five-year-old <laughs> with my dog. We had a border collie. I was raised by a border collie, and um, we didn't have a leash for him. <laughs> he just ran around. At a certain point, you couldn't do it anymore because he kept getting arrested and put in the pound. And <laughs> my mom would look around once we'll go, have we seen Joe today, our dog? And we're like, mom. And we'd go down to the pound, and they were just about to <laughs> put him on the block, and we'd go rescue our dog from dog jail. You can't do that anymore. <laughs> It was a good time. When did your interest in art begin? I was like a kid artist. And I started elementary school when I was five. And I was just one of those kids. I was like the artist in my class in school. And the other kids looked at me and said, she's the artist. She's this experimental artist. And I was always drawing. And that was a big part of my identity. And then I started doing more theatrical things and singing when I was about 10. And then that kind of became more of my life as I was getting into high school. I, I loved being in theater and singing, and but I've always drawn. And um, my dad's big release from the pressures of work and having four crazy kids <laughs> was painting. My dad had his art studio And his first painting was of me when I was a six-year-old and I was at the pond in Ashland. He started painting and he was committed to it and he studied and then when he was supposed to take care of me, I would be in the art studio with him and if a friend of mine came over, he'd give us paint and he'd give us ivory soap to carve sculptures and that was just a big part of my life. People always put on Ella Fitzgerald when we were drawing. <laughs> 
And then um, I'd help him like get ready for the art shows. And my mother was very supportive of all this, which is wonderful. She was very creative. It's not a bad way to grow up. One thing I don't think I had told you about was one project I did recently was a book of letters that he wrote from Europe during the war while he was doing his missions in Europe. He was a flight navigator and got trained to be a navigator in 44. So he got sent to Europe right before D-Day. And back then, before computers, even before calculators, the navigator who would instruct the pilot on the direction of the flight, you'd use math and astronomy. And he got very good at astronomy, but he'd be looking at the sky and always had a compass with him and just do the calculations to figure out how do we get from the airfield north of Manhattan to Labrador, Ireland, and then to England. He was stationed north of London during that part of the war. His mother saved very long, detailed letters of what was going on during the war. And his mother had the foresight to save everything, as well as his diary entries. I think they did 30 bombing missions. And he and his crew, just by luck, avoided being wiped out about three times. Three times they happened to be on leave when everyone else was shot down. It's quite a story. My brother and I published that two years ago. And then this year during the shutdown, a friend of mine that I do podcasting with, he'd written a book and had gotten a, a deal to do an audio book of it. And I asked him about that and he gave me the contact at the company. So we got a deal to do an audio version of the book. It's called Letters from Bud and it's on Audible now. And my brother Eric did the narration, which is pretty cool. <laughs> People used to write very vivid, detailed letters. And his son, Eric, tells the story. Again, collaborating with family. We got that shorthand going on. <laughs> it was funny. We published it with a small publishing company and paid for a consultant. And my brother kept contacting me. I was working on the book. And then I thought, I finally have it ready. We can get it published. It's hard to sell to a big publisher anymore unless you're really known. And I didn't want to sell the rights to the book either. So the funny thing was my brother Eric kept saying, if you need any money to hire a publishing consultant and facilitate getting the book published, let me know. I have some money that came in. So finally I said, yeah, if we could do that, that'd be great. And he said, how'd you get this extra money? He lives in Manhattan in a studio apartment, 
and he's lived there for several years. And he said one day he sees this note stuck in the door from his landlord. And he's going, oh, no, you never want a note from your landlord. But he opens the envelope and the landlord had written a legal letter saying, here's a check because we've been overcharging you for rent for many years. And here's everything we owe you. We hope that'll be okay. Like, don't sue us. Because it was supposed to be rent controlled and they'd been charging him Manhattan market rate. So he got this whopping check. <laughs> so he used that to publish the book. That's amazing. And he'd also gotten like a couple of bonuses from work too that he didn't expect. I thought, who would have thought Letters from Bud gets published because some accountant in a real estate office in New York eight years before made an accounting error or something. And here's the check. There it is. <laughs> That's serendipity at work, lining stuff up. There's so much serendipity with Bud's story. It's just unbelievable. And it kept telling me, don't give up on the idea of this project. And it was hard to get it finished, but finally things came together. When you have to finish something and you're just kind of working with air, this idea that you have, but if you have at least one person who believes in it and keeps telling you to keep doing it. Um, I had a, a dear friend who I used to work with at Disney in film advertising, and his father had fought in the Swiss Army in World War II, and I told him about it, and he said, you absolutely have to do this, and he said, I'll design the cover for you. So he designed the cover. It's gorgeous. And... There was a lot of serendipity, like weird stuff that happened. We'd gotten to a certain point with completing it, like the first rough draft of the story, and we had the cover. And then all of a sudden I get this email completely out of the blue from a couple of old friends in Oregon, childhood friends. I hadn't talked to them in years, and I get this message, and they said, we've been trying to get a hold of you. They had a cabin up at the lake, Klamath Falls, called the Lake of the Woods. So they had a cabin up there, and they said this film crew had come around looking to rent a cabin to shoot a movie. And they were talking to them about shooting the film in their cabin, and they happened to have one of my dad's paintings up in the cabin. Their mother had just died, and she had had the painting for a long time, so they moved it to the cabin. And the production designer saw the painting, and he went, oh, that's cool. Can we use that as part of the set? And they thought they should ask our family for permission, which was really kind to them. So we gave them permission and, you know, it was not a big movie, but it was a Lorne Michaels production with um, Bill Pullman's. And it's a comedy of something like Nature Boy or something like that. But anyway, <laughs> there's scenes in the movie and I could see his painting in the background and he would have loved that so much. And I thought, how weird that something like that would happen right as I'm working on this book about him, you know? <laughs> it's kind of like a little message, like, keep going. How could that possibly be? I think about it every day. I'm one of, what, 8 billion plus people on the planet. Yet, somehow, I'm being paid attention to, around the clock, communicated with constantly, the comedy level of the interaction and the signs and the setup. It's like Larry David omnipotent. <laughs> I'm so blown away and incredibly grateful, but so blown away every day. First of all, you have to be paying attention to see what's happening. Believe in that positive spirit. So many people don't. But I really think if you keep saying, I'm grateful for my life right now and whatever is happening, whatever you're bringing to me, I know there's a reason for it. Thank you. 
I think if you can start your day with something like that, everything starts to have meaning and everything starts to get better. <laughs> Gratitude is the key. Gratitude is the attitude. It will unlock unbelievable doors. Life is dark mixed with light. They're inseparable and everything is just a learning opportunity. There is no good or bad. There just is. Yes, when you are in alignment, you will get everything. Yeah. And everything that you get will not always be fun, but you will get what you need. And sometimes we need to see some dark things so we can figure out how to navigate through them and come out on the other side. It's so beautiful because all this stuff cannot be planned. You cannot even imagine how these things can happen, but they do. And it's brilliant and it makes life worth living. It does. It's so easy for any of us to fall into it. Nothing's working out for me. I don't look good enough. You're kind of telling God and the universe, I don't really appreciate anything that you gave me. So don't give me anything more good because I don't appreciate it anyway. My mother, bless her soul, she had a lot of wisdom and she'd been through that generation of the Great Depression. She had polio. Her brother's killed in the war. They were homeless for a while when her dad died of tuberculosis. I mean, to come through all of that. And she trained herself in the gratitude. And I've had a lot of ups and downs like anybody. And she said, no matter what is happening to you, be grateful. There's something in it that's going to teach you. You're going to learn. You're going to get stronger. And just know that. Just know that you will. And I really believe that. I had had a career as an advertising copywriter for Disney. You know, as a single mom, recession hit, lost the mutual funds, tried to go back to work, and I just couldn't get engaged back in that work again for whatever reason. And I was really scrambling for several years. But, you know, I got through it okay. Did a lot of different kinds of work with the wing and a prayer. <laughs> and there was one day... I remember I went for a walk and I thought, I, I have to figure out what I'm going to do next. Then I went back home and I thought, well, I have a few hours this afternoon. I mean, I'm not working. I'm not doing anything. And all the letters were typewritten. My mom had put them together in a book for my brothers and I and the surviving members of the crew so we could read them. And I thought, they're just on paper. No one's ever put these into a computer. I might as well just type them all up and put them in the computer. And that was how it started me unemployed not knowing what to do and I thought well this will keep me engaged and I thought I love reading and editing at least I can use my education on some kind of project even if I'm not working in my field and as soon as I started doing that that's when I contacted my designer friend Ron Hassler who became a real positive creative partner in the project typing them I'm reading them and the stories are so vivid I thought people need to read this and that began the journey. Also for me, it was very healing because my father had died and the last few years were really rough. He had Alzheimer's. But reading this adventure story of him as a 22-year-old man was so exciting. And he's so vivid in the stories. And every time I would read the stories, I felt like I was there with him and the crew. It was like the best movie you've ever seen times a million. I mean, that was the experience for me. And it was just an experience I had as an individual. It's not something I could really share with anyone, only by publishing the book and having other people enjoy the stories. It sounds like you might have just prognosticated the next level of this book as the movie. It's very vivid, very cinematic. 
one day the release valve on the bombs wouldn't work. So they couldn't get the bombs out and they're running out of gas. But you can't land with a bunch of bombs. They won't let you land. Never really thought of that, actually, that planes run out of gas. So there's a few spine-tingling moments of them trying to get the damn thing open. And they finally pushed the release valve the other way. And he said they had to drop them on a forest in Germany, praying nobody was in there. You know, they had to live with that. There's an incredible aviation museum in Palm Springs. And my good friend, Armin Hargett, he took me down there one day. And that museum, they have a whole wing of it that's World War II. And then a guy took us into one of the planes which, to be in it and see what the space is really like is incredible. The main body of the plane is where all the gunners were, machine gunners. But then right in the same area was where the other guy had to read Morse code. <laughs> I don't know how you could hear anything in that plane, but that was the communication. You know what's interesting when I really think back, I've realized he never spoke of it. My mother told me about it. And my mother told me about it when I was kind of a kid. I spent a lot of time with my grandmother, Edith, the one who saved all his letters. And then my mom said, you know, your dad wrote these letters about the war. We had a party for them for their 50th anniversary. And at the end of the party, everyone was coming up to the mic and doing tributes to them. It was wonderful because they were still alive, getting to hear it. And then the last person who got up to speak said, John, I implore you to publish those letters. You've got to publish those letters about the war. And he said, I know you're very humble, but it must be done. And that stuck with me. And that's when I asked my mother, like, where are the letters? We've never read them. So she typed everything up again and did some more editing and made books for me and my brothers and, and the surviving crew members. It was handed to you on a silver platter. On a silver platter. And you know, this is where the gratitude really comes in. I was feeling very lost. I mean, I'd lost my career. I'd lost my money. I didn't really know what to do. But if I'd kept my career as an advertising writer, I never would have had the time imagination or energy to focus on the book. I had to sort of have everything taken away from me. He died in 2005, and we just put the book out two years ago. He's still taking care of you. Even after he's gone, he's going, you know what, don't worry about it. I got you covered. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. One other kind of weird message that came was, okay, I think it's ready to get published. I had arranged everything with Happy Publishing. Uh, Erica Glessing there helped us create the book. And then my brother in Oregon calls and said, we sent you one of dad's paintings that you really like. And you know what? We were putting the package together and we found his uniform from the war. So we put it in there too. We thought you should have it. So the next day I opened my door, there's this huge box and I opened it and it's his uniform and almost felt like it was glowing. And I didn't know what to do with it. I just draped it over a chair and just looked at it. I let it sit there with me for a couple of days. It was like he was sitting there. And I took a picture of it. And then Erica said, you've got to have that picture somehow on the cover. So it's on the back cover, the picture of the uniform on the chair. Next thing you know, James Cameron and Steven Spielberg are fighting on your front doorstep to see who can get in the front door first. Right.
some things are so difficult, but for me, the process of working on this, it flowed. Whenever I would open the pages and look at it, and it would start showing me the movie and talking to me, and I was just in another world of this adventure of these young men on the plane. And then this year, we've got this pandemic going on, when I thought to contact Rick and Cherry Hill Publishing, wonderful audiobook company, and I thought, well, what the heck, I'll contact him. I contacted him and I sent him the link to the book on Amazon. He gave us a contract the next day and he said, can your brother do the narration? Not knowing my brother had studied acting in London and <laughs> Yale, he's done all these things. And he has a podcast too, but he was born to narrate that book. Absolutely. <laughs> it sounds like the next step is maybe you get to write the screenplay. Ooh, wow. There was one point I thought, oh my God, I've lost my money. I've lost my career. What should I do now? And I went, I know, I'll be an actor again. <laughs> I mean, I tried to do the practical corporate stuff and it didn't last forever. So let's go crazy and be an actor again. I kept taking improv and theater classes because I just loved it. And I studied voice with an opera singer for many years. And then about five years ago, this wonderful young man named Max Cutler, he decided to start a podcasting company. His father had created a radio network and he, he'd grown up with that. And he, he saw that podcasting is really the future. So he created this podcasting company and decided to do scripted shows so that they could be produced every week. So he's got writing team, research team, and they said, then we'll get sound engineers and then we'll get actors to bring the shows to life. And that concept that he created ended up being solid gold. When they first started the company, his father had known a woman named Wendy McKenzie, who was a singer on Broadway and a lot of rock albums and... She was married to Gary Austin, and Gary Austin started the Groundlings Theater in L.A. And the Groundlings is where a lot of the top people from Saturday Night Live have come from, like Phil Hartman and John Lovitz. I knew them a little bit. Anyway, later on, Gary broke off and kept teaching his own acting classes, and people just revered him. He was a very insightful person and very passionate about helping people communicate whatever their story is, whatever their acting story or their writing story. So Max and his father are starting this podcasting company and they go, we're going to need voice talent. They had known Wendy. She did radio with Ron Cutler's company. So they brought her in. And then they go, well, we, we need some more people. Wendy, who else do you know? Well, these other actors studied with my husband, Gary, brought in a couple of those people. They're fabulous. And then the show started to become really popular. They needed a couple more people and then they brought me in. <laughs> They were like, we like people who studied with Gary Austin because they can really do the work and they're not divas and they're kind of nice people and they really know how to do it. So for me, hanging in as an actor, not making a living doing it, but studying with Gary ended up getting me into working full time as a, as a voice artist. When I wanted to have a child, and of course I was I was a little bit older, but I had such difficulty having a baby and ended up in the hospital numerous times and had a near-death experience. And after that, I remember the day I went back to the office after recovering from um, 
ectopic pregnancy that was very dangerous. And you know, you go back to that corporate office when you just about died and you realize, is this really what I want to keep doing? <laughs> I, it's hard to leave a job that's paying you and taking care of everything, but if your party is kind of literally dying, you do have to take a step back. And then I have to be honest, I had a moment there I realized if I had died working in this huge corporate entity, I mean, I know what happened. to be a memo sent around that I died in assigning somebody my old office. <laughs> so a um, year later, I ended up in the hospital again, but they had a big corporate layoff, a big downsizing. At the same time, I just was about to go in the hospital again. And I got out of the hospital and they actually called and offered me my job back. And I decided I'm not doing it. How many times does this have to happen where I'm going to be shown that this is not right for you? So I left it. And then a year later, I had my daughter. <laughs> But that company's insurance paid for me to have my daughter, which I'm very grateful for. So I gave them something and they gave me a lot back too. So that was good. Sounds like you got that hit of DMT that everybody needs so they can see that this two-dimensional bullshit thing we've been doing all this time is merely a piece of the pie. Yeah. Carl Jung said something to the effect that if we only knew the universe is a big circle, we can see maybe 2% of that circle. That's all we're really aware of, unless we really open up to what else is going on. I guess I left in 93, so I had a year where I was just freelancing. That's when I met you. And that year I decided, hey, I did some theater. I got my SAG card, finally. And um, I got cast as an extra in a movie. And Warren Beatty cast me. And he got me my SAG card. That's how I got my SAG card. I had to leave this one job. And I was like, well, this is cool. I get to work on a movie and stand in between Warren and Annette. <laughs> and then somewhere in there, I just sent a resume into the Disney office. I thought I'd never hear back. Nine months later, they call me and offer me the job. <laughs> Delayed reaction. Yeah. What was that job? I was a writer. We wrote all the advertising for the films that were being put on video. And actually, they had acquired Miramax. So I worked for Harvey Weinstein. I never met him, but I, I was working for his company. Man, they had great parties our Oscar party for the English patient and we did Pulp Fiction and I could have kept going until now probably but I just something just told me I had three miscarriages in a row and one was really life-threatening actually two were and it was like right in the middle of that I got laid off but then they came back and offered me the job again a few weeks later and I thought no I can't do this anymore I thought I don't know what I'm gonna do but I can't do this because I thought my priority is not my job right now. I mean, I was married, my husband was working, and I thought I just have to take some time and settle down and have a child. And I got divorced seven years later. Well, Mark, my daughter's just gonna be here for a little while and I gotta finish cartoons to give her so she can take them with her. It was super incredibly fun to catch up with you after an incredible amount of time. Well, you're incredible, and I'm so grateful I got to meet you at that moment in my life. 
Me too, Molly. Thanks so much. Drive across the street. We're running out of gas and we all feel the heat. Get off, get off, get off, get off your ass and walk. Don't wait around while politicians talk. Save yourself some money, get to know your block. Get off, get off, get off. Get off your ass and walk Once upon a time Candy was a treat After a good meal A little something sweet Now it's everywhere Sometimes it's all we eat We can hardly manage To fit into one seat Get off, get off, get off, get off your ass and walk. Don't wait around till you have to wear a smock. Lose your inner tube, get to know your block. Get off, get off, get off, get off your ass and walk. We feel for our remotes, but we can't feel our feet. Get off, get off, get off, get off your ass and walk. Don't wait around till you turn into a rock. Just open up your door, get to know your block. Get off, get off, get off, get off your ass and walk. Get off, get off, get off, get off your ass and walk. get right through maybe the rush is the reason you don't like the things that you hate to do slow down don't worry slow down 
special chair he sits around in it all day and just his underwear and people come to see him he tells them what to do he 
tells them what is beautiful and he tells them what is true. like a two-way scam I don't want to be a guru I just want to tell you where I am Now the world is full of gurus who tell you how to feel They tell you what to think about and they'll tell you is real and they say that they're the cutting edge you are just a notch they say the truth will set you free but it sure does cost a lot and I don't want to be a guru I'd rather keep my thumb stuck in that tell you where I am In the middle of the woods, in the middle of a bite, in the middle of a thought, in the middle of a fight In the middle of a birth, in the middle of a death, in the middle of a book, in the middle of a breath Teach him how to fly 
just want to tell you where I am In the middle of a storm, in the middle of a glance In the middle of a field, in the middle of a dance That's the show. I hope you enjoyed it. It was really fantastic to catch up with Molly B. Such a nice lady. She's been through so much, and she manages to laugh at literally everything. And that is so refreshing when we are in a time of such difficulty and challenge. She still has that amazing laugh. What a wonderful woman, and I'm so happy for her. Be sure to check out Letters from Bud. You can find it on Amazon. You can also find the audiobook on Audible. And I'm hoping that big things happen. I do see this as a movie, and I haven't even read it yet. I'm going to do the Audible thing. I want to listen to her brother read it. Sounds very exciting. I'm hoping I can get Audible here in Vietnam. Certain things we can't get here. It was really fantastic to catch up with her, and I see this as a new window into us reconnecting. Super fun. Citizen 44 with Mark Ahrensberg is a listener-supported presentation. Thank you so much, as always, for listening to the show. I have a lot of fun making it. I may be having more fun making it now than ever, and uh, I will continue to make it. Like I said, I'm five shows away from 100. Here's a funny thing. I reached out to Louis C.K. with a couple of emails and asked him if he would honor me with being the guest on my 100th show, and I promised him that I would not bring up the stuff and the things that took him out of the limelight. I don't care. I'm only interested in him. He's one of the funniest people I've ever seen or heard in my life. Anyway, we'll see if he answers me back. And that's that. I'll be figuring out what show number 100 is going to be. Maybe it'll be just me being interviewed by John Sapo. We'll see. Thanks for listening. Take care. Additional music for today's show provided by Gene Burnett. GeneBurnett.com Thanks, Gene. This show is produced, engineered, mixed, edited, recorded, and presented to you by Mark Ahrensberg. The song at the beginning of each show is called Nico Beat by Robbie Lindauer. The song Departure Family at the end of each show is by Lucky Doug Fergus. Thank you, Sam, Zoe, and Val. If whatever you're doing is not working, there's one way you can change that, and that's to change what you do, 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 change what you do. Yes. I am Citizen 44. If you're paying attention to what is going on here, you will see a lot.